You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Welcome to our couch. Take a seat. It's time for therapy. Movie therapy. I'm Kristen Meinzer, culture critic and co-author of How to Be Fine. And I'm Rafer Guzman, film critic for Newsday. In each episode of Movie Therapy, we offer up dubious advice and solid television and movie recommendations for whatever ails you. As usual, our disclaimer, Rafer, you and I are not real therapists. No. We are not real astrologers. No. We are not real doctors, but we are real TV and movie critics. Yes, indeed we are. Just a quick heads up here before we get into the show. Please make sure you listen to the very end of today's episode as we're going to make an important announcement right before the closing credits. Yes, we will. So please, everybody, once again, stick around for that. And in the meantime, let's get the show underway, Rafer. Let's read some letters. What does our first patient have to say? Let's do this. Our first letter is from... Emily. Yes, Emily. Emily writes. (laughs) Oh, Emily. So many problems. Gosh, so many problems. Every single week. Sometimes three times in a week. Yeah. Sometimes three times in a week. Uh, (laughs) This one's Emily with quotes. Emily with quotes around her says, Dear Rafer and Kristen, I'm writing because I'm feeling highly sensitive about something that happened in my marriage, and I'm thoroughly confused by my reaction. I asked my wife to pick out a piece of jewelry for me and give it to me as a gift. I want to wear something she's picked out for me. On our anniversary, I knew this was causing her stress, so we just walked into a store and bought me something together, but I'm so annoyed that I don't have a partner who would just do this for me. When I pick something out, I feel like I am just getting it for myself. I've shopped for jewelry with her in the past, and I don't know why it seems like such a big deal. It's not an issue of money, but some weird anxiety or pride. Every time we talk about it, there is some different excuse, and I'm embarrassed that I'm even having to ask. Do you have a TV or movie recommendation about a spouse who is not romantic or one that will help me understand why I am putting so much importance on jewelry? As a note, I've never received surprise jewelry from her. We didn't have engagement rings and we picked out our marriage bands together. Mm. What do you say to that, Kristen? Well, this is really interesting because I am not what you would call a gifts person. For my other show, By the Book, my co-host Jolenta and I at one point lived by the rules of a book called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. Sure. And uh, the five love languages are in order of popularity, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, physical touch, and receiving gifts. And when those things happen, if you speak that language, that's how you feel love the most deeply or when you feel most seen. Mm-hmm. Receiving gifts is actually the least popular love language. Well, yeah, you said in order of in order of popularity, so that's interesting. Yeah, and I am one of those people who, I, I'm sorry, Emily, I don't quite understand the value of receiving gifts either. I'm kind of like your wife here where I'm like, like, hold on, why is this so important? I don't quite get it. Because to me, being told how important I am to somebody or spending quality time together, these speak to me much more. But if somebody doesn't want to surprise me with gifts, I don't really care. Like I, I like to receive a birthday present or Christmas present, I guess, but it doesn't have to be fancy. And it can be anything that's kind of like on my Amazon wish list. You know, it, it really... <laughs> 
really doesn't matter. Like sometimes it's like, I just want pajamas. <laughs> like it doesn't need to be fancy. So that super romantic Amazon gift list that we all have. <laughs> <laughs> just sucks the Santa Claus right out of Christmas, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I I guess, Emily, what I'm saying is I'm kind of in your wife's boat here where I'm like, I don't quite get it either. I, I, and I also feel that it would be kind of a fraught thing for me if my partner wanted me to surprise them with jewelry because jewelry, I feel like, is so personal and people's tastes are so particular and it's so expensive. And yeah. I, I mean – People have screwed up just buying me shirts before, and I feel like <laughs> jewelry is so much more fraught than a shirt. So yeah. I, just like the idea of you know getting it right or wrong, I think would stress me out because if I'm anything like your wife, Emily, I just I, I feel like I would do it wrong and it's not important enough for me. This surprises me about you because I uh, just knowing everything else about you, I would have assumed that you just love gifts and that you love to give gifts. I would, I, I imagine you as sort of like a, a well, especially because you love Christmas so much. Oh, I love Christmas, but my favorite thing about Christmas, Christmas movies. Oh, okay, all right. It's the run up to Christmas that you like the best. It's the run up to Christmas. Yeah. I love anticipation. Yeah. I love all that stuff. I love all of it. But yeah, the gifts themselves, it's great when somebody likes a gift that I give them. But yeah, jewelry just, it, it's making me itchy thinking about trying to surprise somebody with jewelry. Wow. Just thinking about it. I'm like, oh, <laughs> damn, I'm going to screw this up. And it's going to be so expensive and so ugly. They're going to hate it. They're never going to wear it. It's going to be terrible. Interesting. Ugh. Okay. not what. But, but, but Rafer, what about you? I need to know your take on gift giving. How do you feel about this? Kristen, I'm exactly the same as you. <laughs> I, I, and I, I, I hate to say it because I feel bad for our listener here, but I'm the exact same way. But I, I will say this. I am somewhat in the same boat in the relationship, although I'm, we're, 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 we're playing opposite roles here. There's a lot of, of gift agita in my family, a lot of gift neurosis, because I think my wife really wants to, for my birthday, for an anniversary, for Christmas, all these things, she would really like to get me a gift and just have me accept it and love it and be happy about it and grateful because I love her. And I feel like but I don't want that gift unless it's the exact <laughs> thing that I have researched and looked into. And I know it's exactly what I want. And I picked it out. And there, therefore, that will make me happy. And it will not make me happy if I have something that is not exactly what I want. And then now, but then, and I don't want to then have to go around wearing it when I don't, <laughs> when I'm not that happy about it. And so my wife and I have a lot of, right, you, you can see you can see where this creates problems. Or I'll give another example. As you know, Kristen, I, I alone moved our entire apartment Yes. Uh, just recently. Um, and I think I've said this before on the podcast. I moved our whole apartment. I found it on my own. I did the paperwork on my own. I, did, I got the moving company, the whole bit. Not that I moved every single thing myself, but it was a lot of work. A lot of unpacking. And my wife said, I'd like to give you a, a nice gift. I feel like you did something good and I should get you like a really nice, like extravagant gift. And so what happened? The last thing I unpacked was my turntable, my, my little cheapy Audio-Technica turntable that I've had for probably 10, 15 years. And it didn't work. And I thought, oh, bummer. It got sort of banged around in the move, but this gives me the excuse to buy that U-turn orbit awesome turntable that I've been looking for. Beautiful wood plinth, fully manual. It's just beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And I thought, this is my excuse to spend some money. And my wife was completely bummed out because she felt like that's going to be the gift, but you're just going to pick out your choices and options or it's going to arrive in the mail and it's not going to feel like a gift. And I thought, okay, but then does that mean I don't get my turntable? <laughs> and then I, and then you have to give me a different gift that I then have to feel good about. And so, it, listen, this stuff is never easy. I came to some kind of compromise. I woke up in the middle of the night. I had a light bulb moment and I thought, oh, and I went and Googled it and I fixed the goddamn turntable. So now there's no excuse to buy the turntable and I'll get a different gift. But even that, you know, that's going to take some negotiation. Anyway, I'm going on very long here, but it's tough. Someone's got to compromise. Someone's got to let go a little bit. You can't change the other person. You can't control the other person. It's difficult. All this gift stuff is difficult. So I understand where Emily's coming from. It's just that I'm, yeah. I'm like her partner. <laughs> <laughs> Emily, I'm really sorry that neither Rafer nor I are like you. I I, I, <laughs> I do empathize with you, but yeah, Rafer and I are 
not like you in this sense. But we do have movie prescriptions for you that hopefully will make you feel a little bit more seen here. Uh, Rafer, why don't you start with yours? Okay, I'll start. I chose a movie that I've been dying to recommend to people. It is called Ruby Sparks, one of my favorite movies of the last 10-something years. Um, do you know this movie? Yes, with Paul Dano yes. and Zoe Kazan. Didn't Zoe Kazan actually write this too or maybe direct it or something? She did indeed. She did not direct it. Uh, it's uh, Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton who did uh, Little Miss Sunshine. They're the ones that directed it. <sighs> but Zoe Kazan wrote it and no collaboration. That is her name on the screenplay. All hers. Um, so if you don't know this movie, I'll give you the quick story. It's about a young novelist named Calvin, uh, played by Paul Dano. I say Dano. Is it Dano or Dano? Oh, I always said Dano, but maybe you're right. Dano? Well, I'm going to say Dano. I'll say Dano. You say Dano. <laughs> you know, he's one of these guys who had a big hit novel with his you know first debut novel right out of the gate. And since then, things have not been going that well for him. Uh, he talks to his therapist, played by Elliot Gould, mm, by the way. Love Elliot Gould. I know. Me too. And his therapist says, you know, why don't you take the pressure off yourself? Just write a little scene or two and don't worry if it's good or bad. So he, he tries doing that. And he has a dream about a girl. And he decides to write about this dream girl, and he gives her a little backstory and some attributes and starts turning into her, turning her into a character. He calls her Ruby Sparks. And, and one morning, she shows up in his kitchen uh, cooking breakfast because that's what couples do. You're the girlfriend. You get up sometimes and cook your boyfriend breakfast, and there she is cooking breakfast for him. And first, Calvin thinks he's gone crazy. This is it. He's finally lost his marbles. His fictional girlfriend has appeared in his kitchen. Uh, she must be a hallucination. But as it turns out, she's real. His friends actually meet her. His friends talk to her. They see her. She interacts with people on the street. It's not just him. Somehow, he has created this girl on the page, and she has appeared in his life. And so this sounds wonderful. He wrote a girl. The girl loves him. They're in love. They're living together. What could go wrong? Here's a clip. She's so cute. What? Your dog. She's so cute. Oh, he's a boy dog. He just peed like a girl. What's your dog's name? Scotty. I named him for F. Scott Fitzgerald. Who? F. Scott Fitzgerald. The novelist. I don't read a lot of fiction. Oh, he's probably one of the greatest novelists who ever lived. Naming your dog after him, it's a little disrespectful. No, it's a gesture. Yeah, an aggressive gesture. Think about it. You're a novelist. Do you think this guy's the greatest? So you name your dog after him to cut him down to size. Kill your idols, man. I'm all for it. Ruby Sparks. So sparkly. What could go wrong, Rafer? What could go wrong? <laughs> what could go wrong? Uh, well, here's what goes wrong. Ruby starts to act like a real person. Ruby wants to do her own thing. She wants to make her own choices, uh, spend time the way she wants to spend time. And Calvin starts to get a little jealous. You know, she flirts with some guy and that rubs in the wrong way. Um, and, you know, you can't really control her. Or can you? Because he wrote her. So he goes back to the typewriter, starts uh, rewriting her on the page and rewrites her as hopelessly in love with him. Hopelessly can't be away from him for a moment. She's desperately, desperately in love with Calvin and only Calvin. And of course, now he's created this super clingy, needy, awful girlfriend that won't leave his side. And anyway, Calvin starts realizing, well, wait a minute, if I just write Ruby, that she loves me. It, is that really love? Is that is that actual love if I forced it on somebody, if I forced this person to love me? And that doesn't feel right. And so he gets himself into this bind where he realizes that, you know, he wants this person to love her, but if you control someone and force them to love you, it's just not the same. And I feel like that's sort of a bind that our listener, Emily, is kind of in. You know, you you want your partner to behave in a certain way, but she doesn't want to behave that way. You could force her to behave that way, but that's not going to make either one of you happy. And so what are you going to do? What, what do you, how do you resolve this? And like I say, I think somebody is going to have to let that go, relinquish some control, admit to themselves that their partner is their own person and can't be changed or controlled, try to come to some compromises, but ultimately... As in Ruby Sparks, you're going to have to let go and let that person be who she is. Mm. 
such great advice for all of us, Rafer, regardless of whether or not we like gifts. That's right. <laughs> Gotta That's let people right. be who they're going to be. That's what we love about them, even if it's infuriating sometimes, right? That's that's absolutely right. Anyway, I just love that movie, and I'm glad there was some way that I could uh, force that into the podcast. Nice. So, Kristen, what about you? What's your recommendation? Well, full disclosure, at first, I'm sure you're going to say, this doesn't seem like a good prescription. This has nothing to do with romantic relationships. And you would be right about that. But I still think it's important to watch this movie. It's called The Farewell from 2019. The Farewell with Aquafina? Yes, based on the story by Lulu Wang from This American Life. Okay. Explain. <laughs> All right. So the reason Rafer is skeptical is because The Farewell is kind of about saying goodbye to somebody who may or may not be dying. It centers on Billy. She's a Chinese-American writer. She has a very, very tight relationship a long-distance relationship with her paternal grandmother, Nai Nai, in China. And Billy discovers from her parents that Nai Nai has been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer, and she's been given only a few months to live. But rather than tell Nai Nai the truth, the family decides to plan a wedding for Billy's cousin so that the family can gather together around Nai Nai one last time in China and say goodbye to her without really having to use the words goodbye. Here's a clip. You know, one of the few good memories of my childhood were those summers at Nine Eyes. They had that garden. Yeah, yeah, and I would catch dragonflies. And then we just moved to the States. Everything was different. Everyone was gone. It was just the three of us. And then Yeah, yeah died. You didn't even tell me he was sick. So it felt like he just vanished suddenly. And you wouldn't even let me go to his funeral. You were at school. We didn't want you to miss the school. We did what we thought was best for you. But I never saw him again. And every time I came back to China, he just, he just wasn't there anymore. And I come back, and he's just gone. The house is gone. Adia's gone. Our Beijing home is gone, and soon she'll be gone too. So you're kind of saying, Kristen, this is also a little bit of a film about trying to control people in a way, because throughout this film, they're kind of trying not to give Nainai full information about what's happening to her. It's partly that, but it's also partly Billy's frustration that I want you to think about here. Billy doesn't really understand why her family insists on keeping this secret from Nai Nai. Right. To her, it doesn't make sense. To her, it doesn't seem fair. But over the course of the movie, through questions, conversations, philosophical explanations, she comes to understand a little bit about where they're coming from, even if she doesn't agree with them. And they come to understand where she's coming from, even though they don't really agree with her either. And Emily, in your case... I think you can do the same. You can ask your wife for her take on gift giving and receiving. And you can explain why surprise gifts are so important to you. And in the end, you probably won't be persuaded to feel the same way she does. And she probably won't feel persuaded to feel the same way you do. But maybe you can each find a way to play along with the other a little bit better so that neither of you is unhappy. And I don't know what that compromise will be. Maybe it will be that Amazon wish list where you constantly drop things in there and the list is 500 items long. And maybe one day she pops in and surprises you and buys you something from it. Uh, maybe it's some other method you come up with. Maybe it's having various friends who secretly know different things that you like and will help your wife pick out those things for you. It could be a number of different things. But, you know, coming to that understanding doesn't mean you have to agree with each other or fully feel like you have come over to the other person's side. It can just be maybe getting a glimpse more of like, oh, I get it. I, I get that this is what your motivation is. And I think that's what the farewell teaches us. It's really about no one's going to be convinced here, but we are going to maybe see each other a little bit more clearly. Kristen, you're always very good about communication. 
I think that's I think that's a, a good thing about your recommendations. Your recommendations always encourage communication and uh, like uh, like frankness and honesty. I think that's a good thing. You're right. I think you're very right about that. It's not always easy, and you know you have to no. have somebody in your life who's receptive to communicating too. It can't just be a one person sport, right? <laughs> no, that's well, no, that's completely true. My wife's totally about communicating. Oh, she's so good. Me, not so much. But oh, I, come I, I, on. Do, I do try. I do try. <laughs> I feel like you are Rafer, but then again, I'm not in a relationship with you. So what do I know? That's true. It makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> all right. So just to recap, our recommendations are from Kristen, The Farewell, and from me, Ruby Sparks. All right. We're going to take a quick break. But before we do, have you ever wondered where are all these prescriptions that Rafer and I have given? Can I go one place to see them all? And yes, you can. You can visit our website, RaferandKristen.com, and there you will see our prescription pad of every film and TV show we have ever prescribed on the show. When we're back, we're going to tackle a letter from someone who's trying to embrace a new life plan. We're back with our second letter of the week. Kristen, what does our second letter have to say? All right. Our second letter writer is named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, Dear Rafer and Kristen, my husband and I have been trying to get pregnant for over three years. We have been unsuccessful. A year into our journey, we were diagnosed with unexplained infertility, meaning there is no known medical reason why we should not be able to conceive. And since then, we've gone in for numerous fertility treatments, all of which have felt like paying someone a lot of money to completely break our hearts. I now face a transition in my life from wanting to become a mother to focusing on living a fulfilled and wonderful life without children. Rafer and Kristen, what would be a great movie or show to watch while I'm going through this time of, hey, you know that thing you really wanted and worked so hard to get? It didn't work out, and that's okay. P.S., Please do not prescribe any stories of women with all the odds against them being able to get pregnant. These incredible fertility journeys just really piss me off and make me feel unseen. Um, I want to say first off, it sounds really maddening. It sounds really, really maddening and frustrating. Um, you know, it's it's really tough. Yeah, and... While my story is different, everybody's story is different, I do think I have some idea of what you might be feeling and what you might be going through. Because the one and only time Dean and I got pregnant, it didn't go well and I had to have an abortion. The pregnancy wasn't developing properly. Uh-huh. And, and it was heartbreaking. And I know this pain and I know what it's like to think, oh, I was really excited about that thing and I was really hopeful about that thing. And what's next? And how do I build the next dream? And how do I live life now when this other dream just, it's not going to happen? So I, I understand that pain. And I am so sorry you're going through this, Elizabeth. I'm so sorry. And I got to say, Elizabeth, also, you're not the only person who's written in with a similar letter. Rafer and I, this is a letter we get almost every month from somebody. Yeah, You're not alone here, Elizabeth. This is a lot of people. And I want to say that... Um, I think it was a year and a half ago, I was hosting another show. It was about the science of happiness. And there was one person I talked with on that show. And I took so much away from him. One thing he said was, in life, a lot of us think we're supposed to be chasing happiness. But what most of us really want is fulfillment. Hmm. And one shortcut to fulfillment is having kids. Finding fulfillment on your own without kids is a much harder task hmm. and one that's not necessarily as socially acceptable and one where you have to put more work in. So yeah. he said that, I admit it, I took the lazy person's way out and I'm so thrilled I have my kids, but I admire people who did things like find a passion, become altruistic, become really, really involved members of their community, people who became really creative, people who tapped into other parts of their psyche and themselves. Mm -hmm. He said they did the hard work. And I so admire those people. And we should all do that because eventually our kids will leave home. And our kids are not guaranteed. We don't know if they're going to live as long as we are. All so true. those people did the hard work. And we should all aim to do that hard work, whether or not we have kids. And I just love that conversation with that guy. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think that's right. Yeah. And one thing I might suggest, Elizabeth, is thinking about what you were hoping to get out of those kids. Was it like lots of psychological ups and downs? 
What are other ways you can find all those psychological ups and downs? <laughs> Is it caring for another person? Yeah. How else in life can you care for other people? So think about all those other things that you might have wanted to get out of kids and maybe use that as a jumping off point of what you can do next. Yeah, I think that's great advice. Um, on that note, do you want to do you want to tell us what your prescription is? Yes, I do. <laughs> it is a documentary from the BBC. It's currently streaming on Netflix. It's called Dolly Parton. Here I am. The prescription for everything. Dolly Parton. Yes, she is the prescription for everything. And if you're not familiar with the great Dolly Parton, and who isn't? Everybody knows who Dolly Parton is. Of course. She is a singer, a very prolific one. She writes, uh, I believe, a song a day and has since she was a child. She is a great musician, a performer, a storyteller, a writer, an actor. She does it all. She also owns a theme park. She's also somebody who spearheaded environmental recycling efforts in the town where she came from, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. She's uh, incredibly altruistic. She started a literacy foundation called Dolly Imagination Library, which has sent millions of books to low-income children around the world. She has done so much. But what a lot of people don't know is that she and her husband, Carl Dean, desperately wanted children. They picked out names for their future children. They really dreamed of having a family together. And unfortunately, that wasn't in the cards for them. And she was very sad about that for a long time. She was at one point suicidal about it. She was very, very sad about it. But then she realized there were so many other things she could do in life. And she leaned on her faith and she leaned on her interests and she leaned on her creativity and she leaned on her altruism. And now she says that she and Carl Dean look at each other and think, wow, would we have done all these things if we had kids? We might not have done these things. Anywho, she doesn't really talk about her infertility in the documentary, but the documentary really does showcase all the great things she did that she might not have with kids. Here's a clip. Well, if I was trying to describe myself, someone that had never seen me before, I would say, calm down. Don't get scared. It's just me. I know I look totally bizarre and artificial, but I'm totally real inside. <laughs> Dolly does have a cartoon image. I don't know if that's sometimes to her detriment that she depends on that gag, or she's just getting in there before anyone else does. You can't take the Tennessee out of the girl. Now that's as far as I'll go with that though. <laughs> she gives away very little. There's a mystery about her. Your smile is like a breath of spring. Your voice is soft like summer rain and I cannot compete with you. I never knew that about Dolly Parton, that uh, that she that she couldn't have kids or that she and her husband couldn't have kids. That's not anything I ever knew about her. Yeah. In fact, I, I I guess I always kind of sort of it had just sort of never occurred to me because she's such a such a fixture and such a presence and she's always sort of doing something and making some kind of news and the sort of the uh, the fact of her uh, family or not no family or whatever had never had never really occurred to me. Yeah, I mean, she's lived such a rich full life that anybody who loves her. It's easy to not even think about kids like, oh, that's right. She doesn't have kids or yeah, maybe right. to never even ask if she has kids or not, because her contribution to music, to literature, to film, to life is so huge. The vaccine. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Let's not forget <laughs> the vaccine. Yeah. She has done so much that whether or not she had kids is kind of beside the point at this point. And I know that we can't all be Dolly Parton. Oh, God, wouldn't it be great if we could? But we can't all be Dolly Parton. Yes. But we can see what Dolly did and maybe get a little inspiration of where to take the first step. Maybe I can dabble in this. Maybe I can try this. Maybe I can think about what I value most in life and try to start there. And that's what Dolly did. So I hope that, Elizabeth, you watch this documentary and see how amazing Dolly is and how amazing you are already and how amazing you're going to be with whatever you do next. I'll have to check that out. That sounds good. I didn't know that they'd uh, done a, a doc on Dolly Parton. Oh, it's really delightful. It really is. But Rafer, I want to hear what you are going to prescribe Elizabeth. Well, Christian, a slightly heavier uh, choice for me, um, as is my want, I guess. But I've chosen a movie that I know you and I both like, which is Sound of Metal. Ah, yes. Sound of Metal. Riz Ahmed, a stellar performance and the most creative use of sound design I have ever experienced in a film. It is yes. mind-blowing. 
I'm not going to give it away, Rafer. I'll let you explain what Sound of Metal is all about. Okay. So yes, like you say, uh, Riz Ahmed plays a guy named Ruben. He is a heavy metal drummer, more of like an art punk heavy metal drummer. I'm not really sure what you'd describe <laughs> his his band. His, his band is really a duo called Backgammon, which is a pretty good name for a, a heavy metal art punk duo. <laughs> so he's on drums. His girlfriend, Lou, played by Olivia Cook. She's the guitarist, or maybe she's the bassist. It's hard to say what they're doing up there on stage. But they're having a great time. They're touring the country in their little RV, playing all these little shows with other bands they know. The fans love them. They're part of this weird, cool little scene. Uh, Ruben is a recovering drug addict, but that seems to be going fine. He seems like he's beat it. Uh, he's doing great. Their life is going well. And one day, Ruben's hearing starts to kind of conk out. He's having these sort of prolonged uh, lapses in hearing. His, his hearing is kind of fading out, sort of like cotton in the ears or something. There's no pain necessarily, so he's not really sure if it's an infection or what it is. Goes to see a hearing specialist, and the news is pretty bad. He's going deaf. There's no stopping it. It's going to happen fast. It's going to happen soon. There's no hearing aid that will help. It's not going to be partial hearing. We're talking about total deafness. Uh, the only possible solution are cochlear implants. They're extremely expensive, something like 40000 bucks. well out of reach for an art metal punk drummer with no health insurance. Uh, and what's more, you know, cochlear implants are not new ears that will help you hear. They're kind of a different thing. And the doctor tries to explain this to him, but Ruben gets kind of fixated on these cochlear implants even as he tries to become uh, a non-hearing person living in the world. Here's a clip. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Till then, Lou, we just keep going, okay? No. Lou, no. let's play tomorrow. Let's see what it's like, okay? I'm going to be like a click track. You can play to me. You understand me? I can't. I'm deaf. I'm deaf. Ruben, the world does keep moving. It can be a damn cruel place. But those moments of stillness. metal is such an emotional journey. And I think on the surface, some people might think I can't relate to this. But I feel like this is a story that applies to anybody. And yeah. I am so glad that you prescribed this to Elizabeth because it absolutely, I think, applies to Elizabeth. Oh, good. I'm, I'm glad you agree. Yeah, I just, you know, it's about this guy who is having this thing happen to him that's really going to totally end the life that he had, the life that he had as he knew it. You know, and he, he's got to, there are all these things he's got to do. He's got to, uh, you know, uh, learn sign language. Uh, he's got to accept the fact that he's not going to be able to play music. But you can kind of tell that in his heart of hearts, he hasn't really admitted it to himself fully, 100%. He hasn't really gotten there. That's not, that's not to put any blame on him. I mean, I think that's part of what makes this movie so relatable is that, we're just with him every step of the way. I don't think any of us could accept it, you know, with the kind of speed and efficiency that he should be accepting it. Of course, he's going to dig in his heels. Of course, he's going to resist. Um, but this is a movie about having to accept something that you don't want to accept. And while I think a lot of this movie can be, like you said, Kristen, very emotional, and it can be kind of tough going, I do think there's a really this movie ends on a really, to make a pun, kind of a high note. It does end on this kind of <laughs> upbeat, you know, kind of, um, it does It does strike this kind of chord of, of acceptance and peace and optimism that I also thought was really unexpected in this movie. And I, I 
that might be a bit of a spoiler, but I want to put it out there to assure our listener that it's a movie worth seeing. Yeah, it's not just a downer. No, it really isn't. It really isn't, even though there are some, there are some moments of really tough going. But I just thought, like you said, Christian, I thought it could apply to almost anybody, almost anybody in any situation where your life is changing and you've got to kind of come to terms with something that you don't want to. It's also a great movie, uh, you know, uh, got nominated for Best Picture, uh, won the Oscar for sound, won the Oscar for film editing, got a lot of buzz, and it's a great little movie. Uh, well, Rafer, I'm so glad you prescribed that. So once again, from Rafer, Sound of Metal, such an excellent film. And for me, the documentary Dolly Parton, Here I Am from 2019. All right, we're going to take one more quick break. But first... Thanks to everyone who has reviewed and rated us with five stars in Apple Podcasts. For example, Sun Plus Night recently gave us five stars and wrote, Kristen and Rafer have taught me that there is a purpose for everything I've ever watched. Whether it's a main character teaching a valuable lesson, a tertiary character modeling a near unnoticed behavior, or maybe the movie is just really good for putting me to sleep when I need that. They give me lots of perspective, laughter, and levity, and it's always nice to have a weekly reminder that there are kind, smart, thoughtful folks out there, right? Oh, Sun Plus Night, what a beautiful review. That is so beautiful. I love that. And I know. Yeah, there is a purpose to everything we've all watched, and yes, most people out there are kind, smart, and thoughtful, even if it doesn't seem like it in the comment threads on social media. That's right. Most people are. <laughs> I totally agree. Let's focus on the good. Yes. Stay with us. When we're back, we'll have our What Should I Watch Next Letter of the Week and our big announcement. We are back with our What Should I Watch Next Letter of the Week. Rafer, who do we have today and what do they want more of? Today, we have Stephanie. And Stephanie says... My husband and I often use the 5-2-1 method to pick what movie to watch. One of us will pick five options. The other will then pick their favorite two from those five. Then the first person gets to pick the one to watch. It works particularly well for us in the current world of too much choice with all the various streaming services on hand. This is how we recently picked Ideal Home from 2018 with Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd. I had low expectations for this film, thinking it would be a cheap laugh and ultimately forgettable, but in the end, I loved it, and I definitely haven't forgotten it. I laughed till my sides hurt at Coogan and Rudd's bickering, and I cried at the heart-wrenching family drama. I found it surprisingly brilliant. I think being surprised by a lowbrow comedy really taking me on an emotional journey was what made it a winner for me. I want more of the same. What should I watch next? Oh, Stephanie, I love this letter for so many reasons. I know, me too. First of all, I didn't know the 521 method. Did you know that method, Rafer? No, I've never heard that. It's so good. I want to start using that in my life in every situation from now on. I want to know if that would work. I'm a little I mean it sounds brilliant. I'm a little skeptical only because the only because the You've got one person making two very important choices, but I guess you do have the the middle person in between doing the narrowing down. I don't know. I don't know. I'm 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 interested in this. I'm, I'd like to try it. I'd like to try it. Yeah, I definitely want to try it. The other reason I love your letter is I'm a big fan of lowbrow. I love lowbrow. Totally. <laughs> As anybody who's listened to this show knows, I love some lowbrow. Yeah. <laughs> who's the one who keeps prescribing Lifetime movies and Christmas movies? This one right here. That's right. That's right. That's Kristen. <laughs> Also, I love Steve Coogan and Paul Rudd both, and I have never heard of this movie. Me neither. Until we got never. this letter, I'm like, what is this movie? I have to check this out. So yeah, I, I will be checking that out at some point. Almost any time someone talks about a movie that I haven't seen, I can I can go back, find the poster, and I'll and I'll say to myself, oh yeah, I remember either I have seen that movie and just forgot, or I'll remember getting the emails for it. I remember when it came out. I can remember why I didn't go see it. I can I can remember that I can I can remember remember that it existed and I can remember why I didn't see it. I, I I've never heard of this movie that rang no bells to me whatsoever. I looked at the poster, I looked at the plot, I looked at the release date, nothing. Never heard of it. Likewise. Oh, I'm glad I'm not alone in this Rafer. <laughs> yeah. Well I think this from the from the the British spellings in this letter suggests to me that this is a UK um, or perhaps British um, listener. And maybe this movie came out in the UK and never made it over here. I don't know. Mm. Or maybe it had a limited release 
over here and a wider release in England. I just have no idea. But I wondered if that might have something to do with it. Anyway. Oh, that would make sense. That would definitely make sense. Maybe. Hmm. So, Kristen, what are we going to recommend to this listener? Well, I got to say, I feel a little bit iffy about my choice. And not because it's a bad choice. This is one of the best lowbrow movies you are ever going to see in your life. Okay. And it is now 30 years old. The only reason I'm on the fence about it is that there's a good chance that, Stephanie, you may have already seen it, particularly if you're over 40 because it's such a Gen X classic. But, Stephanie, if you're under 40, maybe you haven't seen it. Hopefully you haven't seen it or maybe hopefully you have. Anywho, enough dilly-dally. I am prescribing Point Break starring Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves. Kristen, I, I object. I highly object this is, what? And I'm going to tell you why. Why are you objecting to this? Why? Point Break is not a lowbrow film. It is a masterpiece. <laughs> this does not count as lowbrow cinema. This is. I am going to. I'm going to explain what the plot of Point Break is. Listeners, you decide for yourselves. So. After a string of bizarre bank robberies in Southern California with the crooks donning masks of various former presidents, federal agent Johnny Utah, played by Keanu Reeves, infiltrates the suspected gang. But this is no ordinary gang of robbers. They're surfer robbers. That's right. They surf and they steal. They are led by the charismatic Bodie, played by Patrick Swayze. Bodie believes in the spirituality of surfing and of stealing, and he has much wisdom to impart to his followers. But when Utah falls in love with a female surfer, Tyler, played by Lori Petty, who is close to the gang, it complicates his sense of duty. Complicating things further, Johnny Utah may actually love Bodie even more. Here's a clip. They only live to get radical. They don't have any real understanding of the sea, so they'll never get the spiritual side of it. Hey, you're not going to start chanting or anything, are you? <laughs> I might. <laughs> this is me. So, uh, you still haven't figured out what riding waves is all about, have you? It's a state of mind. It's that place where you lose yourself and you find yourself. You don't know it yet, but you got it. It's right there. I saw you with those guys. You're a pit bull. You didn't hesitate and they didn't back you down an inch. And that is very rare in this world. Well, thanks for stepping in. Hey, Nada. Later. Oh, hey. I'm uh, having some people over at my house tonight if you want to come. Sure. Where? Come with Tyler. She knows. All right. Once again, this is a cinematic masterpiece. <laughs> Kristen, this is probably probably in my top 10, if not top five favorite movies of all time. Point Break. It is so good. Utter genius. But the premise is absolutely ridiculous. The characters are absolutely ridiculous. Everything about this movie is absolutely ridiculous, and yet it works so well. Initially, you might roll your eyes. Initially, you might think, what am I watching? But then that love between these two men, a federal agent and a surfer, this connection that you feel, I think you're going to be hit right in the heart, just like you were when you watched that Steve Coogan, Paul Rudd movie that we've never heard of. I think you're going to feel those feels. You're going to feel those feels. You're going to stand up and cheer. And then you're going to think, I need to watch this again every few years because that's how good this movie is. Every few years, you're going to watch it. Oh, definitely. Definitely watch it every few years. It's just, it's, I don't know how to describe that movie. It's just, it's like ultra cinema. It's just like, (laughs) Catherine Bigelow, the director, she was, she was so much more fun when she was making this kind of stuff. I totally agree. Oh my gosh. She knew how to make a tight, fun, snappy movie. Then she got all serious and and relevant. And I just felt like, I don't need that. I want this. I want point break. I want strange (laughs) days. I want, I want, oh God, I don't need that stuff. This stuff's so much better. Uh, Yeah. It is. It is ridiculous though. You got to admit, Rayford, this is ridiculous. (sighs) I don't know, Kristen. Listen, I think there's a lot going on in this film. I think there's a lot the 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 um the dead presidents, the masks that they're all wearing, the the, the, the bank robbers, they when they rob the bank, they're wearing the masks of uh, former presidents, uh, uh, Carter, Reagan, Nixon, maybe Gerald Ford, I can't remember. The the whole movie is just full of like weird stuff that like, causes your brain to kind of disconnect a little bit, right? And then and then <laughs> I don't, there's just something, there's just something about all these weird cultural signifiers and then all this like wild violence. I don't know. There's just, 
there's something there's something very advanced going on in that film. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> I can't make a I can't make a coherent argument for it, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. I think you listen too closely to Patrick Swayze's character. Clearly, the fact that you find this all elevated, just like Bodhi does, you know, you just gotta like ride the waves. You're going down, Bodhi. <laughs> it's gotta be that way. <laughs> My favorite line of the whole movie. It's got to be that way. I say that to this day to my children. It's got to be that way. They don't like it, but I say it to them anyway. Oh, God. Well, let's just agree to disagree. I think it's lowbrow, but brilliant. Rafer, you don't think it's lowbrow okay. at all. All right. We can compromise. We can compromise. At least there. we both agree that this is an important movie. It's important. That's right. And again, revisit it every few years. It'll make your life better. It really will. Totally agree. Hard agree, as they say. But Rafer, what are you going to prescribe that is lowbrow and yet maybe has a heart for Stephanie? Well, I chose a a, a, a much a much more unassuming film. I chose Identity Thief oh. from quite a few years back now, 2013. Do you remember Identity Thief? Of course I do, because you know I love some Melissa McCarthy. Yes, I do. So this was like one of her first movies after Bridesmaids. This was like one of her first big standalone movies, if not if not the first. So uh, let me tell you the story. It's about a guy named Sandy Patterson, played by Jason Bateman. Average guy living in your average city. I think he's in Denver. Can't remember what he does. Average job. One day he gets a call from a woman who is selling identity theft protection, which sounds like a good idea to Sandy. And so he gives her every single piece of personal information she asks for, including his credit card numbers, his security, his social security <laughs> number, absolutely everything. Hangs up the phone and he goes about his life. And of course, we we know what's going to happen, even though poor Sandy doesn't. His credit cards start being declined. He's getting weird phone calls from people he doesn't know. He's arrested for failing to show up to a court date that he had no idea was ever happening, obviously because somebody has stolen his identity. It must be that woman. And he tracks her down, and she turns out to be a woman named Diana, played by Melissa McCarthy, and what happens? Well, she's on the run from a couple of criminals herself. So now they're both on the run and they have no choice but to team up and find a way out of this pickle together. And here's a clip. Oh, jeez. You got an injury. Oh, my neck. My neck got it. Sorry about that. I didn't assume you were going to come to a full stop in the middle of a highway. Oh, a mama badger and a baby crossing the road. A badger, huh? Yeah. Oh, my God. My fibromyalgia is just... Shooting down my spine. Jeez Louise. No, this is totally my fault. Why don't you get your license on you? Why don't we swap information and we can get the insurance companies involved? I guess that's what it comes to. I hate to tell you, but that's that's a custom paint job. Thank you. You know, if it's okay with you, I'm okay and I'm cool with just doing cash. Yeah, cash would be a lot easier, wouldn't it, Sandy Bigelow? Patterson. Yeah. Bigelow's such a rare name. Well, it's a family name, you know. It uh, goes back to the Mayflower. Is that right? Yeah, Jeremiah Bigelow. You maybe have heard of him, pretty, pretty prominent bear hunter. Sounds brave. Kind of a big deal. Here's my license with my name right there. Sandy Bigelow Patterson. Gotcha. Oh, Rafer, this is such a rollicking fun movie. I love Identity Thief. And I love that you prescribed a Melissa McCarthy movie. It's so fun. Yes. It's so lowbrow and so fun. I'm so glad that you like this movie because I remember being quite tickled by it. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is no great shakes. Like a, like a lot of the jokes are kind of dumb and it's a little, a little <laughs> maybe a little crude here and there. But there's this moment, there's a kind of a turning point in this moment where Diana, who is uh, a classic Melissa McCarthy character, she's kind of obnoxious and wild and unhinged and doing embarrassing stuff in public. But there's this moment where she shows this really vulnerable side of herself. And she and Sandy have this kind of nice moment where they become friends. And I guess if you'd been following Melissa McCarthy through her whole Gilmore Girls days, maybe you knew this about her already, but she kind of has that Robin Williams thing, you know, where she can play these kind of wild comedic characters, but also show this real side of herself, this very human, vulnerable side of herself. And that was the moment where I thought, oh, like, like she's not just the, the loud comedic character. Like she's got something like this woman could really go somewhere. There's something really appealing to her. And I gave the film 
two and a half stars out of four, like pretty straight down the middle. Like, hey, this is you know not bad. There's some good stuff in here. And then the then the reviews came out, and the reviews were just just unrelenting. The reviews were so negative. People hated it. This is the the movie where Rex Reed's review said all those horrible things about Melissa McCarthy, and he apologized to her later. All these terrible things about her weight. <gasps> yeah, but people just like people just took a hammer to this movie. And I remember thinking like, I really enjoyed that. I thought, was, I thought it was kind of fun and kind of sweet. And I got a little choked up in the middle of it. What's the matter with me? But I, I like it. I'm glad to hear that you liked it too. Oh, I did. I did. And I think it's exactly the thing that Stephanie and her husband ordered. This, this is perfect for you too. Okay, you, good. You're really going to enjoy this, Stephanie. I think you are. Good, good. All right. So let's recap. I think we've got two good recommendations here from me, Identity Thief, and from Kristen, the magnificent original 1991 point break. And now, Rafer, it's time for our big announcement. Yes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, Emily's of all ages, this is our final episode of Movie Therapy. But please, listeners, if you're still there, we hope you are still there. Do not shut off this episode yet. Do not unsubscribe from the Movie Therapy feed. We have lots of bonus episodes coming your way in the coming weeks and months, including lost episodes, appearances on other shows, and more. So I repeat, please continue to subscribe to the show. And also, please join our Facebook community if you have not yet done so already. There are so many great people there talking about movies, talking about TV, talking about life. That's at facebook.com slash groups slash Rafer and Kristen. And as for what's next, Rafer? I am embarking on some other projects, which I'm not quite ready to announce yet, but you can follow me on Twitter, everyone's least favorite social media platform. I'm there. <laughs> uh, and I'm hoping that not too long from now, I'll be able to post some updates to my life. Kristen, as for Kristen, she's got 15, 16 different things going on. You probably could not escape Kristen Meinzer if you tried. <laughs> Kristen, you want to tell everyone where they can find you and what you're doing? Yes. Yes. So I also host a show called By the Book, which I referenced in this episode. And yep. on that podcast, my friend Jolenta Greenberg and I live by the rules of a different self-help book in each episode, and we record ourselves. So you can hear how each book enhances or destroys our lives and our marriages. Uh, it's kind of a reality <laughs> show. I also host a number of other shows, and you can see all of them at kristenmeinzer.com. They run the gamut from entertainment shows to shows about the British Royals, pretty much anything I'm, I'm obsessed about, I host a show about. So be sure to check those out at my website, kristenmeinzer.com. And Rafer, we should also remind the listeners that we have an enormous back catalog of other stuff they can listen to. That's right. Not just not just this, but also our old show, uh, Movie Date, is still out there. You can still find that, right? Yes. From WNYC, there are approximately 300 episodes of that show. <laughs> Every Friday for six years, maybe more than six years, we made that Something show. Something like that. That yeah. was our Friday for years and years and years and years. And on that show, we reviewed films, we interviewed celebrities, and yes, we even occasionally administered some movie therapy. That's right. That's right. I just want to say that Kristen and I both have had a great time doing this show. It's been so gratifying and so much fun. It was like a, a way to stay connected with people. It was a way to stay connected with you. We had this standing date once a week that we could hang out. And, um, you know, and like, I feel like we tried to do some good for people. And I hope we did. And um, I know for myself, it really helped me get through a tough year. Kristen, I think this was a good thing for you too. Am I right? This show was the best part of the last year and a half. It really was. Totally. I have loved every minute of doing this podcast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Kristen, I'm going to say it for the last time. That's it for this week's episode of Movie Therapy. Oh, parting is such sweet sorrow, but it has been so much fun. Thank you, all of you out there, for listening, for writing in, yes. for keeping us company during one of the toughest 18 months of our life. It has been quite a journey, and we are so grateful we got to do it with all of you out there. We should also thank the Airwave Media Podcast Network, which we are a part of. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and to subscribe to their other fine shows like Food with Mark Bittman and Ben Franklin's World. Until next time, and there will always be a next time. Don't you worry. I'm Kristen Meinzer. <laughs> and I am Rafer Guzman. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. We love you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.